I think a materialist approach to things is very, very consistent with uh, my experience in Christian social justice. I feel like the, the deeper I get into anarchist practice, the deeper my faith is getting at the same time. I would hope that you know, securing means of life for all would be something all people of faith would say, oh yes, that's at the basis of what we believe. Those who are most marginalized know the most about the truth, the good and the beautiful. To me, it's less that I think building class solidarity is a bad thing, as much as it seems like if you don't attend to things like anti-black racism, um, that's always going to get in the way of building class solidarity, actually. And when you go back, you find that a lot of uh, revolutionary grassroots participatory movements, the, the precursors to what you could call um, the barrio assemblies and these like you know grassroots neighborhood organizations, a lot of these were sponsored by the church. What does it mean to say that the Christian tradition is internally contradictory and there are antagonisms there? Um, you're always uh, being faithful to some aspects and betraying other aspects. Welcome to The Magnificast, a podcast about Christianity and leftist politics. I'm Dean Detloff. I'm a PhD student at the Institute for Christian Studies in Toronto. And I'm Matt Bernico. I teach media studies at Greenville University in Greenville, Illinois. This week we're going to talk a little bit about prisons and abolition and a little bit of uh, some stuff from Angela Davis in light of a prison strike that is going on right now. Uh, but before we do that, Matt, I've heard we have a, a, an iTunes review, finally, to get through. Yeah, finally we do. Uh, <laughs> yep, this is our 52nd iTunes review. So, hey, one for every week of the year. <laughs> that's, yep, some real synchronicity <laughs> right there. Okay, uh, this review is titled, Hello from an Atheist Listener, 5 to 5 stars. Uh, they also hey. included a less than three, which I uh, assumed to indicate a heart emoticon. This user writes, This podcast is absolutely great. I love the dynamic between the hosts and the community that is clearly growing between this and other lefty podcasts. I came here by way of Rev Left Radio. Nice. This podcast provides so many perspectives that I'd otherwise miss. And yes, y'all have at least one non-Christian slash non-religious listener. Thank you so much for challenging my years of Richard Dawkins edgelord style indoctrination, <laughs> TM. Cheers and keep up the good work. Less than three. Again, I think it's a heart emoticon. <laughs> that's uh, cool. That's great. Yeah, I'm into that for sure. Yeah. Uh, always cool also to get a shout out from Rev Left Radio. They're good friends of ours. So happy about that. Yeah, uh, we get the occasional email from people who aren't Christians who say thanks for their what we're doing or whatever i think that is pretty wild uh, but very cool i can't, i'm not sure i can imagine listening to this podcast if you uh weren't um vaguely interested in christianity but i'm thankful that people do think of all the really strange alienating jokes we make <laughs> yeah uh at least we we haven't gone down the like early 2000s christian ska rabbit hole too far yet i feel like yeah not yet but maybe soon <laughs> maybe you never know I could talk about supertones for a while, probably. <laughs> uh, one day, one day we could talk about. Uh, I feel like Five Iron Frenzy really uh, set me on a path of uh, radicalization. Some vaguely anti-capitalist uh, horn music in there. <laughs> yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, exactly. Put on that right gear. <laughs> yeah, that's right. All right. So, uh, as you probably heard, as of uh, August twenty-first, there has been a prison strike going on in the United States and in Canada as well. It's spread here. 
Um, so the folks who are organizing and striking are vulnerable, I think, especially to uh, the oppression of white supremacy and capitalism, like few other people are. There's a kind of special, a lot of special dynamics going on there, and we'll talk about some more of that in a minute. Uh, but you don't have to take our word for it, because the prisoners themselves communicated a, a list of demands. Um, so it's probably good that we recognize those up front and kind of share those demands with everybody here, and maybe we'll get a chance to talk about them more specifically in a future episode or something. Um, but just to sort of set the context for like why we decided to do an episode on prison abolition, uh, here is what some actual prisoners are demanding uh, right now. Um, Matt, do you want to just go back and forth on these? Yeah. All right. So there's 10 of them. Uh, here's the first one. Immediate improvements to the conditions of prisons and prison policies that recognize the humanity of imprisoned men and women. Two, an immediate end to prison slavery. All persons imprisoned in any place of detention under United States jurisdiction must be paid the prevailing wage in their state or territory for their labor. Three, the Prison Litigation Reform Act must be rescinded, allowing imprisoned humans a proper channel to address grievances and violations of their rights. Four, the Truth and Sentencing Act and the Sentencing Reform Act must be rescinded so that imprisoned humans have a possibility of rehabilitation and parole. No human shall be sentenced to death by incarceration or serve any sentence without the possibility of parole. 5. An immediate end to the racial overcharging, oversentencing, and parole denials of black and brown humans. Black humans shall no longer be denied parole because the victim of the crime was white, which is a particular problem in southern states. 6. An immediate end to racist gang enhancement laws targeting black and brown humans. 7. No imprisoned human shall be denied access to rehabilitation programs at their place of detention because of their label as a violent offender. 8. State prisons must be funded specifically to offer more rehabilitation services. 9. Pell Grants must be reinstated in all U.S. states and territories. 10. The voting rights of all confined citizens serving prison sentences, pretrial detainees, and so-called ex-felons must be counted. Representation is demanded. All voices count. Yeah, so uh, sorry that's like a, a good chunk of audio, but I think it's important to get those on the table up front and just kind of keep those in our mind. Um, and also you can learn a lot more about this strike uh, on another cool podcast, um, episode 21 of the podcast Millennials Are Killing Capitalism, which is also just a great podcast in its own right. But uh, they did a good episode on this uh, a little while back before the strike kicked off. This is a podcast about Christian and leftist politics, so there are a lot of reasons that Christians um, and leftists alike should care about prisoners. We can justify it with the Bible and church history and a whole bunch of leftist theory, for sure, but we can also just listen to the witness of folks who have actually been to prison and who have studied it. To do this, we'll be taking a look at Angela Davis's book, Are Prisons Obsolete? So, uh, spoiler alert, prisons are obsolete. <laughs> They're not good. <laughs> Um, anyways, <laughs> uh, Our Prisons Obsolete is a really short book, and you can definitely go check it out yourself. You should probably do that if you haven't. Uh, it'll take a good, you know, three hours to read or so. It's not very long. Uh, but even though it's short, it does make a pretty strong case against the carceral logics in general. It's a really good, short, and, like, hard-hitting book. So get out there and, and maybe read it. Um, but uh, if you don't want to or you can't or whatever... You can just listen to us talk about it, and that's fine, too. <laughs> yeah, we've got some cliff notes, I guess, on this very short book. Um, so we kind of organized the episode around three themes, uh, and we'll just kind of take them in turn here. Uh, we tried to sort of collapse some of Davis's arguments into these headings. So the first one is that prisons are taken for granted. 
Um, so in the same way that people take all kinds of things for granted, like capitalism or other kind of prevailing logics of our world, uh, prisons too are just things that people think, well, we have them and they're just natural, you know, they kind of have to be here. And that sort of stops us from imagining any alternative and it stops us even from hearing the suggestion of an alternative. Uh, but Angela Davis sets out to explain that in fact, prisons haven't always existed and, uh, there's good reason to, um, maybe think about that historically or genealogically or however you'd like to, to phrase it. Right. So maybe we can just kind of jump into it and uh, see what Angela Davis says. Uh, so the first thing that she says uh, towards the very beginning of the book and the beginning of her argument is this. Many people have already reached the conclusion that the death penalty is an outmoded form of punishment that violates basic principles of human rights. Shout out to the Catholic Church. What's up? It is time, I believe, to encourage similar conversations about the prison. So the point here is pretty straightforward. A lot of people think that the death penalty is kind of old-fashioned and, like, you know, you're not wrong. It is. Um, but since people think that about the death penalty and it, it at one point seemed like a sort of natural part uh, of human life or of human society, maybe uh, prisons, too, will go that way as well. Yeah. Uh, and so a lot of the introduction, especially, I think, is a cool sort of... Um, I guess like historicizing of what prisons are and what they could be. So one way that Davis gets into this is by talking about her own imprisonment. Um, so she went to prison in the late sixties uh, and was wrongly imprisoned. And you can read all kinds of really interesting things about that, uh, but save that for another time. Um, reflecting on that, she says, when I first became involved in anti-prison activism during the late sixties, I was astounded to learn that there were then close to 200,000 people in prison. Had anyone told me that in three decades, ten times as many people would be locked away in cages, I would have been absolutely incredulous. Uh, and then she goes on to sort of ask why people didn't just start, like, freaking out about uh, the explosion in prison populations. And uh, at the time of writing the book, she noted that there are around 2.2 million people incarcerated. Uh, so there's this pretty wild line where she mentions that uh, she would never have thought that that would even be possible in the U.S. back when around the time when she would have been in prison because she felt like people would have uh, surely like rioted or, you know, gotten really upset uh, if that was was happening. But as she kind of traces throughout the book, uh, that did not happen. In fact, a lot of people just uh, kind of readily accepted like a, a huge, crazy spike in prison construction. Yeah, it is a pretty startling fact that uh, the prison population just exploded like that. It's one of those weird things where, like, you have to ask yourself, how did people become so well-adjusted to, like, injustice? How did that happen? Mm -hmm. How did, like, nobody freak out about it? Because it is kind of astounding. But um, as Davis will kind of go on to argue later in this part of the book, that prison is a, like, abstracting sort of system that uh, it's really easy to not think about it. And uh, it is only mediated to us through lots of images. So we don't ever kind of understand prison as... Uh, as a, you know, a crazy oppressive system uh, for those reasons. Well, uh, before we get into some of that, uh, she does note that uh, there's some data that even should make us really question incarceration just generally. So um, she is noting during the 60s when, you know, there were only uh, 200,000 people in prison um, and then it exploded. Uh, but she does notice, note that the explosion in prison population didn't equal a decline in crime. I mean, that's the kind of assumption that I think most people would make, right? That um, the more people you put in prison, the less crime there is in the world. That's like the uh, that's the, the dream, I guess, for uh, people who love uh, incarceration. <laughs> that's um, what your dad thinks at, uh, at dinner. Yeah, I mean, probably. Exactly. Um, 
Uh, but what's really weird, and like once you kind of get into Dave's book, and even if you read other books, you'll kind of find this um, the same kind of fact and same way of thinking repeated. Um, that the um, rise in incarceration, the you know the boom of mass incarceration, happened at a time when crime rates were at an all time low. It's uh, even really weird because like regular old sociologists, like the boring old white guys of sociology departments at universities, like they thought that it, like prison was going going to go away, that it was going to be a thing of the past, just like the death penalty. But then all of a sudden it uh, skyrocketed for some reasons. Um, you know, we, we could probably name a few of them, like the war on drugs. Um, but I think what's worth drawing out here is that there's not a correlation between prison population and crime rates. So that's like a really good sort of like myth to get out of the way or like a good old ghost to bust right off the bat. Um, (laughs) (laughs) just because like, I don't know, you think that those two things are correlated and guess what? They're not right. Uh, prisons might serve uh, some other kind of like function other than reducing crime. And that is a big idea in this book yeah and uh i mean she'll go on to talk a lot about different kinds of uh i guess like boring reasons that prison happened like this person passed this law and you know this person i guess uh built this prison in this place or whatever but she i think like the real value of the book is actually uncovering a number of different logics that undergird why prisons happen um and some of them are like strictly ideological uh that have you know obvious material consequences like racism and sexism and sort of a gendered view of the world that we'll get to in a minute uh but one thing she also uncovers is uh how capitalism feeds into prisons generally um here's a i think a kind of long but really good quote worth uh, reading So Davis writes, we live in an era of migrating corporations in order to escape organized labor in this country uh, and thus higher wages, benefits and so on. Corporations roam the world in search of nations providing cheap labor pools. This corporate migration, this leaves entire communities in shambles. Huge numbers of people lose jobs and prospects for future jobs because the economic base of these communities is destroyed. Education and other surviving social services are profoundly affected. This process turns the men, women, and children who live in these damaged communities into perfect candidates for prison. In the meantime, corporations associated with the prison industry reap profits from the system that manages prisoners and acquire a clear stake in the continued growth of prison populations. Put simply, this is the era of the prison industrial complex. The prison has become a black hole into which the detritus of contemporary capitalism is deposited. Uh, So I think that's a really kind of important thing to keep in mind, too, that like, okay, prisons are bad for a lot of reasons. um, But for some for some specific people, prisons are actually very good. Like if you make money off of prisons, uh, that's a a really good thing to have uh, more and more private prisons. Um, And the fact that there are for profit prisons is already absurd. Uh, but she even makes it a little more troubling, I think, by pointing out that, like, in some communities, uh, prisons are built under the assumption that, like, they'll provide jobs or they'll provide, uh, like, secure industries that can't be hit by, like, recessions and they don't produce, you know, like, pollutants like factories or whatever. So there's a lot of really, like, gross kind of capitalist arguments made for more and more prisons. Yeah, exactly. Um, And uh, she doesn't say it here, but she does talk about it elsewhere. Um, I mean, like, the, with relation to the strike that's kind of going on right now, too, that um, that cheap labor is also, you know, in prisons and they right. don't make any money whatsoever. Or if they do, it's like, you know, um, 
20 cents or something crazy. Yeah, like it might as well not be money. Yeah, exactly. I think it's helpful to outline the sort of material reality of incarceration and how it kind of functions within the political economy. Um, because it does show sort of what prisons are kind of for. Um, she says uh, at one point, um, kind of like a, kind of being a little bit snarky, why are people so quick to assume that locking away an increasingly large portion of the U.S. population would help those who live in the free world feel safer and more secure? Um, the idea here is like, like what's the correlate? I mean, if there's no real correlation between um, crime rates and incarceration, why is it that we think that will help people feel like more secure? And it's like, well, it won't. It actually has a sort of different uh, disciplinary function. And uh, that's what she's giving us here, like what that actually looks like in terms of political economy. Right. And as she goes on to, uh, she'll show that it does actually make certain people feel more secure, namely like wealthy white human beings in America, uh, yeah. because prison statistics are such that like there are some people that the, that white people don't like. And those are the people that go to prison. Right. It makes them feel secure. It does not actually make right. them more secure. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, don't mean to imply that uh, they're correct in assuming that they would be more secure. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Man, it, the whole thing really does give me some like crazy pause, though. Um, so I live in a really small town um, in the middle of nowhere, um, and it has like three places you might work: a university, a factory, and a prison. And like that's kind of it. <laughs> yeah. um, so like I've been in the prison in my town to do some because uh, I taught a class there once. Um, but uh, talking with the prisoners I've, I've known there, like, I don't know, this all seems like it all rings too true to me. And it kind of makes me feel a little bit pained because I know people who directly are kind of affected by this. Um, mm. When Davis says that it's an abstract reality, that prison is an abstract reality. I think she's right. I guess just for me, like, since I've like I have faces to put with some of these ideas, it really is less abstract and more yeah. troubling. Yeah, I mean, just also anecdotally, like, uh, a lot of my family has been to prison. I won't say who, obviously, <laughs> uh, but a number of them. Uh, and it's pretty crazy to, like, chat with all of them about their own experiences and how they feel about it now. And, I mean, universally, they're all basically like, yeah, these places are not designed to make you a better person. And, like, if you are a better person in spite of it, like, that's because uh, some kind of crazy miracle happened to you. Like, it is not because of anything that happened there that would make you, like, a better person afterwards or something. Yeah, uh, absolutely. They are not places for rehabilitation at all. They're places for punishment, for right. retribution. So there's a lot of classic, I don't know, Marxian materialist reasons for prisons, etc. And those are important. Um, but I think maybe even a little bit somewhat more important are actually kind of the, uh, racist and kind of gendered things that Davis draws out in her treatment of prisons. Um, and there's a lot that she talks about that's pretty, uh, uncomfortable is a word to use. Probably not the best word, but, uh, stuff that should make you be like, this is an extremely bad, horrible place <laughs> that nobody should want to go. Um, so she especially takes this time to talk about the experience of women in prison uh, and the ways that uh, gender and patriarchy are used as a specific tool of oppression against incarcerated women, which she obviously has a pretty unique take on having been an, an incarcerated black woman. Uh, and she goes as far as saying uh, gender, the gender structures that the prison system has uh, informs the disciplinary mechanics between prison and, and inmates. Um, so Matt, anything kind of jump out uh, you in that? Yeah, the way she starts framing this chapter is um, 
pretty interesting and pretty telling to me. So she says in the very first like opening paragraph that you know she could have called this chapter um, "Gender and Incarceration" or something, or "A Woman's Experience in Prison," but instead she chose to title it in uh, "How Gender Structures the Prison System." So uh, for her and her explanation of it, um, I, what sticks out to me is is the ways that like the experience of a woman in prison is that like their gender is used against them in all of these like really kind of terrible ways not kind of terrible uh that was like a weird like filler word uh some actually terrible bad ways <laughs> um i don't know i can't really stress how how bad it actually all is um so the chapter opens up with like a really graphic description um of a strip search that all incoming women prisoners undergo i mean i don't know like what the sort of process for every prison is in the entire world but i imagine that that's probably pretty standard um davis frames the invasive nature of the search as quote state-sponsored sexual abuse that's a kind of interesting way to think about it um a structural type of sexual abuse um Mm. uh, while this is i mean i don't know uncomfortable way of thinking about it uh it it highlights the mundane violence of prison that hinges on the gender of inmates right there's something specific about uh the ways that power is exercised over them because they're women so she notes a lot of different ways that uh gender is part of the disciplinary regime of uh of incarceration uh but uh, time and time again she returns to the ways that like um prison is trying to form them into like more domestic subjects like to be a woman in prison is is to like have failed out of femininity in some certain ways so that Mm. all of the jobs that they end up taking are all really domestic in nature like cooking and cleaning and sewing and like those types of jobs whereas you know men's prisons are probably different um so it's always trying to reform that central like idea of femininity and trying to like you know stuff women into that specific role and make them practice those skills as if like that's what they've lost and that is right. such a striking idea in a way that um women who are incarcerated end up being treated in like really different way than men um at one point she has this quote that is really sticks out to me um as well she says masculine criminality has always been deemed more quote normal than feminine criminality there's always been a tendency to regard those women who have been publicly punished by the state for their misbehaviors as significantly more aberrant and far more threatening to society than their male counterparts okay so there's like kind of a lot going on there on the one hand like that masculine criminality is more normal is probably also a really racialized understanding of criminality too um but um you know men in general i guess people might assume that they it's more normal for them to be criminal and that's kind of messed up but yeah (laughs) but but also like uh it's it's also bad uh that like you know when um when women transgress against the law or whatever they are punished in a particular way that makes them you know not even women less than right uh and speaking of kind of the connections between the gendered understanding of prisons uh, and the racialized understanding of prison, she talks about, too, how, like, uh, female prisoners are sort of assumed to be, like, hypersexualized uh, in a way that almost uh, licenses those, or I guess definitely licenses those kind of state-sponsored sexual abuse, as she talks about it. Hmm. Um, and she links that pretty directly to, like, the way that uh, slave women were viewed and treated in, you know, uh, not just, like, antebellum uh 
American society, but afterwards too, right? There's a, a whole <laughs> massive body of literature that you can read about um, all of that. Uh, but I think kind of working backwards a little bit, the connection she makes between slavery and prisons are really interesting. I mean, for folks who already know about some of this stuff, maybe this feels a bit remedial, but um, I think it's always worth uh, mentioning that things like the 13th Amendment, right, which uh, abolishes slavery, are really uh, weird because in the abolition of slavery, there is also a provision for a continued slavery in specifically a prison context, right? So uh, a lot of the, the really bad dynamics in slavery get like, obviously and intentionally sort of migrated into the prison system uh which is a racialized system for for a lot of reasons um so i think it's it's cool that she kind of pulls all this historical stuff out because you can see how prisons aren't just like things that like appear in the world to like solve a problem like crime or something like that like they're historical institutions that grow out of other systems of injustice like slavery uh, like patriarchy and then the way in which those kinds of oppressions get mingled and intermingled. Uh, they all have this kind of, um, you know, ongoing life or transformation into a, a different troubling kind of system. Yeah, I think that's a really helpful thing to draw out. Uh, sometimes, I mean, people wrongly think that institutions are kind of, you know, have discrete edges. They begin and end somewhere. They have historical lineages that we can we can, we can trace back to one place specifically or something. Um, but I think that you're right. Uh, and Davis is right. She's more right than you. You're just repeating what she said. Um, <laughs> but like, you know, that um, it's not like prisons just appeared, right? People learn these techniques of biopolitics from a place and that place, yeah, was slavery. Yeah. And I mean, she doesn't go to this in too much detail, but she does mention that Christians have a really troubling history with prisons in general, right? Like the Quakers are sort of the obvious example um, and this might be a good way, too, to talk about some Christian pathologies involved in thinking about prisons today. Yeah. So she mentions that, you know, like Quakers, for example, they advocated for prisons as a basically like reformist measure, right? They were like the kinds of punishments that are happening now, which are basically like somebody just gets sentenced to like a brutal and, you know, horrifying death. Uh, those are really bad. So what if we had places that were penitentiaries, right? Like places where you could uh, reflect on your wrongdoing and then maybe one day even get out. Um, so she kind of notes that there's this weird Christian logic of like repentance uh, that created prisons. And uh, it's not like those prisons were created with like really good ways to actually be a better person, but that was the logic underneath them. Uh, and so it was, prisons kind of came out of this weird reformist ideology already. Uh, and I think a lot of Christians today still carry that with them, right? So they think that prisons are generally supposed to be places of uh, penitence or repentance. Um, so, you know, if you're like a good liberal even, it's like, yeah, I don't know, some people go to prison, but like maybe they could get some help there, get an education, come out, like get a job and be productive members of society or something. Um, and that I think is important for Christians to reflect on that. Like we helped build a system that has like structural state sanctioned abuse. And, uh, we like continue to defend it for a lot of really bad Christian reasons. Yeah, totally. Um, that is a great way to think about it. <laughs> um, there's more of that Christian complicity and structural evil in the world right there. <laughs> yeah. I had a friend who was doing a bunch of research on, um, solitary confinement and like monastic cells and that's all very yeah. interesting but one thing that he had found was that you know solitary confinement is sort of designed with this really weird idea of like well if you're sort of alone 
uh maybe you'll have this i don't know like damascus road experience or like the silence will be somehow transformative and that's a weird sort of quaker inheritance as well um but obviously like that's not the case like solitary confinement is a brutal dehumanizing uh piece of like i don't know really bad like disciplinary technology that doesn't serve to make people better i think at this point what davis contributes that is really helpful is just like explaining the ways that uh carcerality is itself an ideology that's like um, right you know with caught up within capitalism and white supremacy and stuff like that but it is an ideology within itself in in so much as it creates a really weird delusion in the way that people think about um yeah like justice and rehabilitation and the resolution of sort of social sins um so that we think that yeah well what they need to do is is have like you know be in silence because like for you know for whatever reasons that's what we believe it takes um i had some students last semester who did some really cool work about um solitary confinement uh if you guys don't follow the podcast you probably missed all of the times i talked about this weird class that i taught about prisons anyways they did this uh project where they were looking at um the mental health of prisoners who go into solitary confinement and guess what it's extremely bad and harmful right. like if you, if you are a if you are a person who is stable you will come out very like unstable and if you are a person who is already unstable you'll come out even worse it's like the worst thing that you can like someone can do to you in prison um it is so bad so bad yeah. for you as a person it will not make you feel better or remorseful it'll just make you like crazy yeah uh it's wild that that is also just uh you know has like really obvious traceable roots to a christian tradition that is usually known for being a a progressive kind of tradition in many ways yeah for sure i mean it is progressive like okay if you go and read the opening of foucault's discipline and punishment uh where they talk about like you know the guy who tries to commit regicide and then how they like yeah you know tear him apart in like a thousand pieces or whatever I guess it is like pretty progressive if you think about it. But <laughs> sure, also, it's better than that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, Foucault might say, you know, a little bit, but um, <laughs> <laughs> but like you know, it's still bad. Yeah, and it doesn't do what it even tries to do, right? It's completely yeah. It's completely illogical. It's a delusion. It does not produce the effect that is intended. Yeah. Uh, so I guess one thing that we could maybe start transitioning toward is uh, some alternatives that Davis suggests, or at least some frames that she suggests for us. Uh, But uh, before we do that, maybe we should do one final um, or like we should read one final, a really good Davis dunk uh, on these. Well, what you could call kind of like liberal feminist approach to incarceration. Um, I'll let you read this quote, Matt. It's a really good uh, observation, I think. It is, a, it is a slam dunk, for sure. <laughs> yeah, saying it's a liberal feminist approach might just be, um, I don't know, maybe that's too mean, because obviously the person who wrote this is actually really strange, but whatever. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, I, I don't want to be too mean, but at the same time, they bring it upon themselves. Okay. <laughs> During the 1980s, the author Tekla Miller advocated a change in policies within the Michigan correctional system that would result in women prisoners being treated the same as men prisoners. With no trace of irony, she characterizes as feminist her own fight for gender equality between male and female prisoners. Miller's position was that guards should be instructed to shoot women just as they were instructed to shoot at men. 
She argued that parity for women and men prisoners should consist in their equal right to be fired upon by guards. <laughs> oh my yeah, god. It's crazy. I mean, obviously, naturally, okay, liberal feminists don't think this. So No, sure. no. But uh, it is a, like, really dumb and, uh, like, it's a position that somebody actually held and, like, understood within a certain feminist framework, which she's completely wrong, obviously. Uh, and there are lots and lots and lots of feminists who would rightly uh, be upset with that. Um, but I think that uh, the re- one reason that Davis pulls that out is to illustrate that, like, um, there's, like, more than one way to understand yourself as, like, thinking about the gendered relationships that happen in prison, and uh, this is a bad one, and there are, like, radical egalitarian ways to try to understand how to dismantle these really non-egalitarian structures, right? Um, Yeah, so let's get into a little bit of that, of these alternatives. Um, So a lot of people don't get behind prison abolition because they can't conceive of a world without prisons. That's what we were just talking about, right? That, like... uh, there's a we like we take them for granted uh some people say like prison reform sure like we've got there's a lot of bad stuff that happens in prisons we just got to roll that back get some better guards in there like hire some better wardens i don't know um but the question that always gets posed to leftists uh also gets posed here like what's the alternative without prisons um and i think the answer is kind of the same with prisons as it is with anything else if you're a leftist that uh, the alternative isn't just like a single ready-made solution, but like a whole social transformation. Um, and that is what Davis gets at. And I think that's actually the right tack to take, even though it might still be somewhat frustrating. Uh, what do you think, Matt? Yeah, uh, the last part of the book here, the um, the abolitionist alternatives is really appealing to me because uh, having taught this class in the past that I just mentioned, um, and being a prison abolitionist myself, students are always like, yeah, but where do you put all the bad guys? And it's like, well, <laughs> who do you think are the bad guys? Batman. Um, <laughs> that was my Batman was in my class. Um, <laughs> sorry. Um, uh, side note about Batman. Remember that time in Lego Batman where the beginning of that movie is about how uh, there should be like progressive crime reform. And then Batman is like, no, there shouldn't. And that's just how the movie ends. Yeah, exactly. Um, just a bad mythology about prisons yeah lego batman has a really good critique actually of justice uh and uh every three-year-old knows that (laughs) (laughs) um well anyways uh the question like where do you put all the bad guys is a really silly question because prison abolition is not about like well just like a different building like a bigger a bigger, more fun prison is like not a the Google, answer. Like a Google headquarters prison is not <laughs> what Angela Davis wants. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, so uh, prisons are institutions, and institutions are not really like one thing, right? It's not like prisons stand alone in the world. Uh, institutions are like a part of a whole network of interlocking different types of institutions with different types of relationships. So Davis suggests we have to rethink all the nodes in that network, not just the prison, not just making a more fun prison. Uh, So she also warns against thinking of like, quote, prison-like alternative to prisons. Um, So like house arrest is bad too. Um, It might seem easy to write Davis off as a utopian or something, but she has some pretty direct suggestions in mind for how to pose the right questions that would yield the right answers for rethinking prisons along these abolitionist lines. So here's one thing she says. Positing decarceration as her overarching strategy would try to envision a continuum of alternatives to imprisonment. Demilitarization of schools, 
revitalization of education at all levels, a health system that provides free physical and mental health care to all, and a justice system based on reparation and reconciliation rather than retribution and vengeance. So she also mentions recognizing how criminalization works, especially with things like drugs or sex work or laws that convict women who kill their abusers. All those suggestions seem pretty natural to me for Christians to think about. So um, we should be thinking about like the way that our society itself is structured to create criminals and rethink those things that make the criminals happen. <laughs> um, so um, like decriminalizing drugs or sex work uh, are things that you should definitely think about. Um, thinking about like, like maybe education should be propped up a bit more. <laughs> maybe health and mental <laughs> health should be like available to people, right? It's like um, there are things in society, there are pieces of that uh, that relationship of carcerality that lead people to prison for one reason or another, and maybe we could just start fixing those things, and it would make prisons less necessary. Um, so that's. I mean, like, not straightforward. It's complex. It's very, like, a, it's a complicated thing to fix all of those problems. But that's what it takes to really do justice, I think. And that's what Davis tells us. So it seems pretty natural for Christians to think about that. I, I think that's a good thing that we, uh, I think it's a good thing that Christian, like, it's a good analysis that Christians should pay attention to. But also I think it's something that would definitely preach in a church too, right? Like, if you had a good mm-hmm. pastor and they said, like, listen, let's fix these things, people would be like, Oh uh, yeah, but really, we're just talking about socialism. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, even things like a justice system based on reparation and reconciliation rather than retribution and vengeance, right? Like, uh, like however you want to cash out your weird atonement theory about like what's going on with all that. Like, <laughs> no matter it seems like no matter which one you pick, it does kind of come down to this. Uh, yeah, well, reconciliation and reparation is the kind of thing that you're supposed to want rather than like retribution and vengeance, uh, one way or another. Right. Um, I don't know. That seems just like a like a really obvious like worldview switch or something that Christians just haven't like made when it comes to prisons, even though it's it's natural in other theological domains of their thinking. I'm really psyched for all the weird tweets we're gonna get because you said cash out on your like whatever atonement <laughs> theory. That's gonna go hey, over li- really listen, well. <laughs> listen, all I'm saying is that cash out on your atonement theory is a pretty good way of putting it because atonement theory is linked to debt and the creation of capitalism. Don't at me. Uh, All right, moving on. Uh, (laughs) So (laughs) there's also, I think, some really cool, like, Marxist things to think about here. This is my hard pivot away from those tweets into some other dangerous tweets. Um, So certain kind of, like, classical forms of Marxism uh, often write off what Marx calls the, uh, the lumpen proletariat. Uh, so that's a fancy word for, like, the group of people that is unemployed and then, like, they say, you know, and in reality often turn to crime, right? That's, like, one way to get money uh, without having, like, a job. Um, and I think, like, it's kind of a weird thing that Marxists write those people off as not having any kind of revolutionary potential. Um, and abolition actually encourages us encourages us to uh think of like the revolutionary power that's still available in that social class uh and it's power that was like definitely activated uh historically by a lot of different groups in the 60s um so you know like the young lords we talked about a little while back right like that's a a gang like a lot of uh what would be considered the lumpen proletariat in a marxist sense Uh, but they became like a a real you know party that understood class struggle etc 
Um, and another one that is probably the most obvious is the Black Panther Party, which Davis worked with. Uh, she was a member of them for a bit and then also a member of the Communist Party and still had ties to the Panthers. Um, so I was just, uh, as I was thinking about this, I thought of this speech from Huey P. Newton. Um, this is a speech given at Boston College in 1970. So he says... Um, if the ruling circle remains in power, the proletarian working class will definitely be on the decline because they will be unemployables. He says that because of like the rise in technology and the kind of uh, like loss of jobs. Um, and therefore, they will swell the ranks of the lumpens who are the present unemployables. Every worker is in jeopardy because of the ruling circle, which is why we say that the lumpen proletarians have the potential for revolution, will probably carry out the revolution, and in the near future will be the popular majority. Uh, that's not didn't turn out to be true but nevertheless not a bad point uh of course i would not like to see more of my people unemployed or become unemployables but being objective because we're dialectical materialists we must acknowledge the facts um i think uh i guess the the basic point that i kind of want to draw out there is that uh the black panthers saw the lumpen proletariat not as like um i don't know people just orbiting like society and also orbiting revolutionary movements but they saw them as like people who uh had like revolutionary potential that just needed to be activated um i think it's like probably a real christian kind of impulse there too right that like the people who are on the margins of a marginalized society still have not only just worth but like they have a, a genuine value um and they're not just people that you have to like go save and take care of or something like that but they're people that like have things to say as well um so i don't know just all the kind of abolitionist stuff makes me think that this is sort of a challenge for both marxists and christians in general yeah for sure i think that's a really interesting insight i mean uh i guess he was wrong because the lumpens did not uh just like revolt or whatever yet <laughs> uh but i mean it, it kind of makes me think too this is like stupid marxist speculation so maybe we can edit this out even if it's bad but uh, we can think of all the ways that capitalism is like continually shifting to sort of absorb that um, energy of the unemployable. So, I mean, like putting them in prison is like a good way to do it right. And longer prison sentences mean like um, less of that like unemployable pressure. Uh, but also like the the like the explosion of like the gig, the gig economy is a huge example of this, too, of ways that like that that lump in power is like uh, absorbed into some other end. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And it, like, uh, makes organizing really hard, right? Um, mm -hmm. Which is really good for capital. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's dumb. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know. Uh, maybe it's dumb speculation. I guess it just always sticks out to me that um, capitalism is a very fluid and flexible sort of uh, political economy that can absorb things as they come, absorb, you know, obstacles. And it just seems like something worth pointing out, but maybe not. Okay, well, no, here's another so. thing. Okay, good, thanks. <laughs> I appreciate that. Um, one other thing that Davis mentions uh, that Christians should probably explore a little bit more is the connection between anti-death penalty advocates and prison abolition. It was only a few episodes ago that I mentioned growing up in the Nazarene church and talking about how they were anti-death penalty, but they didn't really have anything to say about prisons in general, so something, something there probably. Uh, she writes this, The death penalty has coexisted with the prison, though imprisonment was supposed to serve as an alternative to corporal and capital punishment. This is a major dichotomy. A critical engagement with this dichotomy would involve taking seriously the possibility of linking the goal of death penalty abolitionism with strategies for prison abolition. Think about that. <laughs> like, if, if the death penalty is completely bad, um, 
and off the table for Catholics and as it is for like a lot of um, Christians, whether they be like pro-life or whatever, um, maybe there's like more room to push there, right? If, if uh, the death penalty is bad, maybe prison is bad too. Like it's a good way to start drawing or it's a good way to start asking the question about where we draw those lines. Yeah, I think so. And just to ask like, uh, okay, so you're against the death penalty, but why? And then, you know, maybe pushing some of those reasons a little bit further, uh, because a lot of them share reasons with why you might also be against, you know, uh, prisons. Like, if you think it's because nobody is, like, irredeemable or something, or if you think it's because uh, people still have dignity that can't be erased or whatever, you know, like, those are some of the things you see in Catholic conversations anyway. Uh, well, those reasons are also pretty good reasons to think that, like, maybe the prison system is not uh, a good reflection of those kinds of values. Yeah, um, all of that actually makes me think back to the demands of the prison strike. Um, if you'll recall, <laughs> if you, you like, you'll probably have them memorized. Uh, the fourth one, uh, the fourth demand is, um, I think, maybe has some rhetoric that might actually be helpful for us thinking through this. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, again, it was, the Truth and Sentencing Act and the Sentencing Reform Act must be rescinded so that imprisoned humans have a possibility of rehabilitation and parole. Um, no human shall be sentenced to death by incarceration or serve any sentence without the possibility of parole so death by incarceration is like a pretty interesting term which i think just means like you shouldn't be able you shouldn't it shouldn't be possible to sentence someone to imprisonment until they die like a life sentence or or whatever right um so like if if you're against uh the death penalty are you also against like letting people die in prison it's like you know it's not it's not administered in the same way but like you know death comes for everybody if you wait long enough and um hmm think about that think about that christian <laughs> yeah and i think too death by incarceration is also a great way to talk about the conditions of prisons right like this prison strike was also uh sort of prompted by uh the murder of a couple of inmates um just this summer yeah uh, you know so this is a, a protest against the incarceration which does actually deal death to people not just by uh, old age or whatever but through you know all kinds of of really awful mechanisms uh that are not good for human bodies and human life um i don't know death by incarceration is a, a really interesting kind of expansive rhetorical move i think yeah i think so too it's a good one <laughs> Uh, well, we are hopefully going to keep thinking about this for a little bit. Um, we'll kind of see where it goes. But in the meantime, uh, in addition to this great Angela Davis book that is cheap and available and short and that you should read and uh, bring to your small group at church, uh, there's also a bunch of, of Christians who are thinking about abolition these days uh, and not just reform, right? Like real prison abolition. Um, so we talked to Vincent Lloyd a long time ago, um, a little bit about prison abolition. Uh, that was one of our earlier episodes, and I think that's still worth listening to. Um, and he's published a bit more on abolition, and also his writing partner in that project, uh, Josh Dubler, has done a, a number of things on it as well. Um, and I've just been seeing some friends kind of post different like websites and resources for a, what seems to be like a growing movement of Christians for uh, the abolition of prisons in general. So, I mean, if you feel convicted by that, um, there are lots of Christians out there who already agree with you and maybe go uh, link up with them and see what's up.
Thanks for listening to the Magnificast. If you like what you heard in this episode, you can uh, support us on Patreon. That would be really cool of you. You can also just follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, we're on Facebook. We got a special secret, super secret, double, triple secret Facebook group called the Magnificast Basement. You can get in there. You can post links. You can say hi to people. Um, ch- check That's it out. That's the secret. That's the secret is fr- uh, friendship, actually. Uh, we're also part of some really cool podcast networks. <laughs> uh, one's called Theology Corner and one's called Critical Mediations. And guess what? They're both great. Um, listen listen to those. Um, if you want some cool Magnificast swag, Swagnificast, uh, that's a thing. Uh, you can yeah, we to, used that hashtag once. Yeah, you can go to Redbubble, uh, redbubble.com. It's a website, and you can buy our stickers there. Go to there. <laughs> go to redbubble.com. <laughs> <laughs> go to there. Go to, go to there. Go to redbubble.com and just search the Magnificast, and you'll find a lot of good stickers that Dean has spent hours making. So but you got to buy them. Just for him. Just for me. Somebody's got to support it. <laughs> uh, my my waste, <laughs> wasted time after having uh, drank too much alcohol at like 3 in the morning and deciding to uh, to look up pictures of Fidel Castro, basically. That's how that happens. Well, <laughs> when that when that beautiful Castro man gets in your head, what do you got to You got to just you got to make a sticker of him. When the spirit moves you, you know? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> cool. Uh the music for this podcast. Uh, sorry, let me try that again. <laughs> That's a really good NPR voice. <laughs> well, let me try that again. The intro music for this podcast is <laughs> shoot. I can't even do it with a straight face. <laughs> uh, nobody can tell you're smiling, so it's fine. That is true. Um, okay. <laughs> I keep okay. <laughs> <laughs> Congrats to the the three people who have heard this. I'm not editing it out, so. Yeah, great. Okay. Uh, people usually stop listening at this point. The intro music in this <laughs> podcast is brought to you by Amario Armstrong, and it's really good. The outro music is from The Illogical Spoon, which is also a good band. Check them out on Bandcamp. Cool. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. <laughs>